Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I, I, I can't believe it's March 7th already. Uh, uh, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's an age thing. But I personally cannot believe how quickly the first two months of 2022 have gone. Um, I'm really starting to notice those signs of spring as well, specifically the longer days, and uh, absolutely love it. A uh, quick trip to Huntsville, Alabama today. Uh, I'll be back on Wednesday. Uh, then a nice stretch of time at home to get caught up on all of the other things that are so challenging to do when you're when you're traveling. And specifically, I'm talking about writing, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, again, a reminder that there's still time to register for a few of the upcoming events, Grading from the Inside Out, the two-day training, virtually April 5th and 12th. I'll be in Des Moines, Iowa, face-to-face this month, March 28th and 29th, and San Antonio, Texas, April 25th and 26th. Standards-based learning in action in San Antonio as well, April 27th and 28th. Uh, So all of those trainings, all of that information will be available on the uh, Solution Tree website. Links in the show notes, of course, uh, to help you navigate there as well. Okay, as always, thanks for tuning in this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I, I appreciate all of you. Uh, This week, my guest is my friend, Dr. Sasha Heckman. Sasha is the Assistant Superintendent for Innovation and Learning at the American School Foundation of Monterey, Mexico. And so we talk about innovation and personalized learning. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to talk about the art of corrections and how we can provide students feedback and guidance, but still accurately assess their learning independently. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Sasha Heckman is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I'm going to open this week by sharing a strategy. It's probably more like a mantra that I use when I feel a little overwhelmed with all of the things that I have to do. Now, over the last few weeks, and honestly, I don't see this changing much until the end of April where I might get a bit of breathing space, but over the last few weeks, I've been feeling quite overwhelmed with all of the projects that seem to be coming together or seem to be due all at the same time. The deadlines are relentless, and the workload starts to pile up. And and I'm sure you've felt this way too. Like sometimes, as I said, the work is just relentless, and you look at your to-do list, and you wonder to yourself, how am I going to get it all done? And I seem to have been there a lot lately. Now, when I get to that place, I've learned to lean on a personal mantra that helps me manage the tasks. It's kind of a mindset that helps me chip away at the list and makes the, makes things feel more manageable, to be honest. And it is in some ways a sort of micro mindset that has me more granularly focused and able to get through many of the things I have to do. And the mantra that I use is do something and finish it. <laughs> now, I know that sounds really simple, but I will explain it. I know the phrase do something can be taken in a number of different directions, and I'm sure you weren't sure where I was going with that because you could... You could phrase it differently, right? Your tone and and emphasis. Do something, as in panic, or do something, as in sarcasm. So there's a lot of different ways that that phrase can go. But for me, it's do something. Now, look, some of you may not need this. Some of you may do the same thing. And I'm not pretending that this is some sort of revolutionary idea or anything like that. I'm just sharing what I do because it's something I've been feeling lately. Now, in the past, and I mean you know, a while ago, I'm not talking about my recent past, but long while ago, when I first started teaching, you know, in the early 1990s, I started to feel quite overwhelmed with all that I had to do as a teacher. 
Now, part of that is just learning to be an adult with responsibilities that are real and what it means to really work. You know, sometimes we don't really know what it means to truly work hard, especially in our formative years. And I remember growing up as an athlete, there was always this idea that you had to find your limits, right? You had to find how far you could push yourself, not in a detrimental way, you know, something that causes permanent injury or anything like that, but just in a way that helps us understand what it really means to work as hard as you can. Because sometimes in your youth, you say, I'm working as hard as I can, but you're not really because you haven't found those limits yet. I think we have to figure that out in our professional lives as well. Again, not to the detriment, not to burnout, not to feeling overwhelmed, etc., but just to figure out what we're capable of. Because we don't really know that when we're in university. I mean, we sort of do, but it's a different kind of, of work and a different kind of pressure. Now, I'd often feel in that early part of my career, I'd often feel quite overwhelmed with all I had to do. And if I'm being honest, there were times I just didn't feel like doing any of it. I wasn't always in the mood, or at least some of it. I wasn't always in the mood to plan, or I wasn't in the, always in the mood to mark assessments or whatever. You know, I'd look at my to-do list, I'd feel overwhelmed, and I'd almost feel a little frozen in that moment. Like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? I'd stare at the list and wonder, like, how in the world am I going to get it all of it done? And then one day it hit me. I don't have to get all of it done. In fact, I can't get all of it done simultaneously. I can only get all of it done one thing at a time. So I went micro. I looked at my list and I said to myself in that moment, just do something and finish it. So I picked one thing I had to do and I saw it through to the end. You know, prior to that, I often, you know, had many things that were kind of half done and I bounced back and forth and it was this constant, you know, like I said, back and forth between all of these different tasks and I found myself not really paying close attention to any of them. And I know some people like to talk or pontificate about multitasking But that just means you're not focused, honestly. You know, could you multitask by listening to a podcast while you're mowing the lawn? Yeah, sure. But multitask as in do two or more meaningful things or important things simultaneously? No, you can't. Sorry. It just makes you more susceptible to mistakes. It makes you sloppy. You're not really paying attention. Our brains can only focus on one thing at a time. And if you don't agree with me or you're pushing back on that, then... Just listen to what Nancy Napier wrote about in Psychology Today back in 2014. She wrote, The research in neuroscience tells us that the brain doesn't really do tasks simultaneously as we thought or hoped it might. In fact, she says, we just switch tasks quickly. Each time we move from hearing music to writing a text or to talking to somebody, there's a stop-start process that goes on in our brain. And that start-stop process or start-stop-start-again process is rough on us, she says. Rather than saving us time, it costs us time. Because even in very small microseconds, it's less efficient, we make more mistakes, and over time it can sap our energy. She goes on to say that we are not multitasking as in doing things at the same time. She says we are switch tasking. I knew it. I always thought these grandiose claims of multitasking were bullshit. So rather than doing it all, I thought to myself, nope, focus on getting all the way done. Because when it's done, it's done. And then you can get it out of your mind. Now, I know that's not always possible, right? Especially when it comes to bigger projects like writing. So what I do with bigger projects that are on my plate is I set a timer because any progress is still progress. 
So when I'm on the road, for example, and I come back from dinner and I'm at the hotel or something like that, I say to myself, okay, I'm going to try to write for an hour or I'm going to try to write for 90 minutes or something like that. Or when I'm at home, I might say, okay, today I'm going to get four hours of writing in. So I set a timer. And when I get up from my chair and I stop writing, I stop my timer. When I start again, I sit down, I start the timer again, right? Because it's easy to turn four hours of writing into one hour of writing and three hours of wandering around the house. Now, look, I I know for some of you, all of these rules and timers would stress you out, but it actually has the opposite effect on me. It calms me down. It keeps me focused, keeps me on task. So obviously, you have to devise a system that works for you. Okay, so I look at my list and I think about what I'm in the mood for in the moment. And again, I can't always do that because of deadlines that are pressing, etc. But when I can, I do. And if I feel like I'm not in the headspace to think, then maybe I decide to just go through and organize the receipts from my last trip. Or I start putting together a handout of a presentation where I've already built the slides, but I just need to put the handout together so it's a little bit more procedural. Or I answer emails or whatever. It's in those moments where I know I need to be productive because not doing anything is not an option. Because stuff is just going to keep piling up. So for me, the do something and finish it mantra has helped me a lot because eventually I get to the tasks I originally didn't feel like doing. And I don't know if it's psychological or if it's just that the list is getting smaller. But I typically, rather quickly, uh, end up in the right headspace to think, to create, to write, or whatever the tasks were. Again, I know this is not something revolutionary. Um, But it was something I was experiencing in recent weeks. And so I thought I'd share that uh, with you on the the podcast because so many things were piling up for me. So the next time you're staring at a to-do list that feels overwhelming, remember, you can't do it all. You can only do it all one task at a time. So go micro, do something, and finish it. Joining me this week is Dr. Sasha Heckman. Sasha is currently the Assistant Superintendent for Innovation and Learning at the American School Foundation in Monterey, Mexico. Previously, Sasha was Director of the American International School in Mozambique. He was also a high school principal at the Shanghai American School. And prior to that, he worked at various schools throughout California. Sasha is the co-author of the book, Personalized Learning in a PLC at Work, and he is the co-founder of Eight Degrees Up, which is a group dedicated to helping students own their futures by owning their learning. I first met Sasha at a PLC conference held in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. So it is great to reconnect with him today. Sasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to, great to have you here. Fun fact, listeners, uh, one of the highlights of that conference in Ethiopia, uh, besides the conference, of course, all the learning we did, uh, was the fantastic Oktoberfest, surprisingly, the fantastic Oktoberfest, Sasha, that we attended at the hotel. And you had commented to me at the time when we were there that it was one of the best Oktoberfests you've ever been to. And, and surprising yeah. to be in Ethiopia that we did that. For sure. I have a little uh, street cred on that as well because I'm German heritage. I've been to a few yeah. Oktoberfests. And so now it was fantastic. The food was good. The pretzels were amazing and the beers were big. So that's yeah, never that- a bad thing. Never a bad thing. And yes, I am German as well in heritage, but I don't know that I have the same Oktoberfest pedigree that you do. But uh, uh, it just shows you that uh, where there's a will, there's a way. 
uh, you can, you know, you can create an, a great Oktoberfest anywhere. So uh, let's let's jump in right now because I think we got a lot to explore and a lot to talk about. And I want to start with the uh, the arc of your career. I mentioned some of the highlights of where you've mm-hmm. been, but maybe fill in some of the some of the missing pieces for us and highlight your professional journey that kind of led you to becoming an author, a keynote speaker, and and really considered an expert in personalized learning. Yeah, I mean, I have a, I think, a, a windy road, I guess I'd say. I mean, I wasn't going to be a teacher to begin with. I was going to be an attorney, much like for many first-generation college kids, you're supposed to go to something technical. But I just, I, I fell in love with school. And I started my career working with really at-risk kids, uh, kids coming out of California Youth Authority or kids on their way to California Youth Authority. And yeah. uh, that was really um, a great experience, seeing the impact education can have on transforming lives and, and really got me invested. Uh, social studies teacher by trade, soccer coach, uh, of course, German backgrounds, uh, coached a bit of football. Um, and so uh, then I got into administration kind of by, by a tap on the shoulder, like many of us do. I was doing, I really enjoyed teaching and I was having a lot of success with at-risk kids. And my principal said, hey, we kind of have a school-wide at-risk kid problem. So can you help us close this achievement gap? So that really became my, my passions work is, is really achievement gap work and equity work um, in public schools in California. Um, you know, I was very proud to have see a school get out of federal sanctions. We were in program improvement at the time is what they called it. And we were able to exit by, by really making a, uh, a big difference for kids that, that were at risk, um, or as I like to say, at promise. Um, and so then uh, that kind of, as happens when you have a lot of success, gives you a little bit of rocket boost uh, forward. And I was a principal in California. Um, and then uh, somewhere along that journey, we're having also a lot of success, but I had my own family, my own kids, and my wife, I'd always wanted to do something different. So uh, that took us abroad. Um, and so that's when I went to Shanghai American School, which was a fascinating experience working in China. Um, at a American school where we're doing American curriculum work with all expats, but also, you know, it's my first time I would say where I was working exclusively with a, a privileged group of kids um, and seeing kind of some of the learning challenges being the same. So in the, in the United States, I was always about, hey, this this problem is really economic. It's poverty based. It's it's those things. But really, maybe it's not. Maybe it's system based and maybe it's of how we educate kids. And that was kind of the inspiration of, of looking at agency. And, and why do we do education to kids? Why, aren't, why isn't education happening with kids or by kids? Um, and then I met Dr. Tim Stewart at a conference. I heard him speak and he was one of the few people talking about the same things I was talking about. And I'm like, hey, we should probably get together and like amplify our voice and, uh, and do something together. And, and that's when we launched the book project, um, Personalized Learning. Both of us are big believers in the PLC process, how it can transform schools. Um, and we thought it was a, a very powerful way to transform the experience of kids. Um, so that led to, to the book. And luckily we had Mike Matos and Austin Buffum who gave us an ear and was like, yeah, that's really interesting. Let's think about that together. Um, and then from there, it's, it's just gone forward. And so each place I've been, I went to a school in Africa and I uh, worked on the IB, worked in the IB program, which is really about agency and, and inquiry. Um, that was really fascinating to see that lens, yet it's still incredibly institutional with a lot of rules and procedures and compliance metrics and all of those things that we all deal with as educators. And then now I'm in Mexico and, and I, um, my job is to kind of work on the system and try to get us to do a better job with kids in the classrooms. And, and so I really enjoyed that. Going from being a superintendent where you're working externally a lot, I'm really enjoying working internally with our faculty. So that's been my journey. And um, I've had an opportunity of, of people giving me chances to, to speak and I've taken those as they've come. And uh, you know, this last week I was at the RTI summit in Austin. That was a fantastic experience uh, working with over a thousand public school educators. And, and so I'm really enjoying that. And that seems to be more and more direction that way uh, which is amazing opportunity to kind of influence education on a, on a grander scale uh, with beyond my school building. So I'm really enjoying that. Yeah. That's kind yeah, of the it, journey. 
It's been a, a certainly an, a fascinating journey, and I have certainly over the last decade have been, had the good fortune of working over, with over, overseas international schools uh, quite a bit, and have been just really enthralled and fascinated by the whole international school scene. And 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 funny how small a world that is. So I want to I want to take a bit of a tangent here, listeners. You may mm-hmm. recall, uh, longtime listeners will remember I had Tim Stewart on the podcast in in the fall of uh, of 2020. Uh, so. Uh, this is uh, Sasha is Tim's uh, business partner and, and they work together and they co-author, et cetera. But many listeners um, are likely intrigued, Sasha, by your overseas experience and, and maybe um, wondering how they can do that. So from your perspective, I'd, I'd like to ask you two things about mm-hmm. overseas teaching before we dig into personalized learning. First, what, what drew you to international education? What were the, like, what was it? How did you hear about it? How did you become familiar with it? And, and I've got a second follow-up question, but first, what, what was it about international education that just sort of caught your attention? Well, I mean, pragmatically, um, you know, there was some real pragmatics. My wife had always wanted to do it. I didn't know anything about it, to be honest. My wife had wanted to go abroad and she was doing a five-year plan in California. And I met her in year four and kind of ruined her plans as sometimes happens, you know, when you meet someone. Um, and so she still had this urge and I'd become a principal. We had our, our, our two kids. Uh, my son was just born um, and we were working a lot. And frankly, not getting ahead very much financially. Um, and it was really difficult in California. We're both mm-hmm. working educators and, and we can't buy a house. You know, that was our reality. Um, and my wife's like, we should do this thing. And I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a cynic. I'm a show. I could be from Missouri, you know, show me. Um, and so she's, I said, there's no way someone's going to pay me a full U.S. salary and cover my housing. And I get to live in an amazing exotic place. And she's like, no, no, it's real. So I went and checked it out. And it was. And it um Basically, international schools or U.S. public schools abroad, typically started by and supported by the State Department for diplomats and and expats living abroad. They're U.S. accredited. I I always get the, are you teaching English to foreigners? No, that's not what we're doing. We're running a comprehensive high school with sports programs and AP programs and IB programs and all of that. And um, and it's very transferable. And so once we found out, it's a small little black box of how you get into the system. And so... Um, you know, we figured that out and, and I applied to Shanghai and, and I was fortunate enough to get that position. At the time, I didn't realize it was such a prestigious position because, mm-hmm. I mean, I was running a school of 2,700 kids and my high school at Shanghai was 700. It didn't right. seem at the same scale, but then you realize the reputation of the school once you're there and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I got a good job out of this deal. Um, but um, so I've been very fortunate to travel that circuit. And they're basically private schools that are loosely affiliated right through the State Department, right. typically. Right. Um, right. But yeah, they're great schools and, and really interesting kids who have different perspectives on the world. And, and it's, it's fun work, but it's 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 hard work, just like U.S. public schools is hard work. It's, yeah. it's the yeah. same work, but with different kids in different For places. Sure. I think you and I just missed each other because it was March of 2012 when I did a two day assessment training uh, in, in, at Shanghai American school. And I think you were hired in the summer. You started in the, that following That's right. fall of 2012. So we, we could have met a lot sooner had the timing worked out a little bit differently. So here's my follow-up question. Those who are listening right now thinking about, you know, they're intrigued by it, or they've always wondered, I wonder what it would be like to, to teach overseas, but I don't know how to go about doing it. How do mm-hmm. I find out what is the best way for educators who are interested in teaching internationally? What's the best way for them to go about at least exploring or finding out, you know, what the possibilities are for them? Well, first, if you're listening to this and you're interested in agency and personalized learning, contact me because I'm always looking for good educators at my school. <laughs> so I'll do a little shameless plug there to contact no, me. No, absolutely. but um, 
There's a couple of uh, recruitment agencies that kind of dominate the environment. One's called Search Associates and the other one's uh, International School Services, ISS, and they kind of dominate the placements. So most of us work with those recruitment agencies. There's a long time recruitment fair at University of Northern Iowa, go figure, Northern Iowa, that has done a lot of placements. If you're Canadian, Queens has has had a long history of placing teachers abroad. So our school uses all four of those services to to find teachers. And so that's the entry point. Um, and, And really what most schools are looking for is teachers with three at least three years of public school experience um, mm-hmm. with some background and then um, and then from there it's depending on the school they have different criteria but yeah I would reach out to those agencies and and they're the, they're the place to start they have kind of yeah. the, the monopoly on the marketplace when it comes to teacher placement because we just you know I'm recruiting teachers from all over the world so it's difficult for us to have a network right. um, you know if you find a school you like you can always direct apply but I think the recruitment agencies are probably the best step Okay. And one last question about that very quickly before we dive into other content. Um, Sounds very glamorous working in China, Mexico, you know, Africa, et cetera. There's a lot of glamour associated with working overseas. What are one or two things that people would have to be prepared for when working overseas that they may not be thinking of when they're distracted by this sort of uh, the, the, the highlights of being able to travel the world? What are, what are some things that people need to prepare themselves for when they think about working overseas? I think professionally, the biggest thing is that people have this notion that I get all this autonomy when you go abroad and because you don't, you're leaving kind of the notion of state mandates and so forth. Well, when you go work at a private school, the parent mandates are as intense or more intense than that. Right. So there's still a lot of pressure and accountability in a more in a more tangible way than maybe you expect. And also, I think early people were leaving schools uh, from standards um, and trying to get that autonomy. And I, all the schools I've worked are, are U.S. standards aligned. And, and so standards-based education is here to stay. P- professionally, I think you have to be really open-minded. I, you can't be seeking to recreate America someplace else. You have to be willing to embrace local cultures and really understand things from a different perspective. And you have to be an inquirer. You have to be willing to go because I've seen people... Well, it's not like it was back home. Well, yeah, you're in China. That's true, right? I mean, that seems obvious, but it's strange when you go to an American school and, and you know, that things don't work the same way, um, yeah. you know, and if you haven't traveled a lot and seen a lot, that can be a little disruptive. And, and so you can definitely have that challenge. But that yeah. open-mindedness is, I think, the key to really finding success abroad. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so let's let's jump in. I want to focus on student agency and, and personalized learning. We hear that phrase a lot. You know, student agency is thrown around quite a bit today, um, but I often see different interpretations that uh, of what that ultimately means. So, from your perspective, let's just start with basically what is student agency from your perspective, and how do we cultivate that in our schools? Well, I think for us, we define student agency as a student's ability to take specific and purposeful action to advance their level of success. Um, And we take that straight from the dictionary um, when you start looking at what agency really means. Um, And Mm -hmm. so we try not to overcomplicate it. We want to use kind of common nomenclature because I think in education as authors, we often create new terms um, for lots of reasons. I try to avoid that as much as possible. Uh, The other thing that I think is really large for us is kids have it. Um, they already have it, whether you're talking about a baby who's putting things in their mouth, whether you're talking about a, uh, my son who's who's in fourth grade that just learned how to play a video game online. They have it. Kids know how to learn. Um, they already have agency. The question is, do we allow them to bring that into the classroom? Um, and so for us, what we talk about a lot is the expression of agency. Do the kids have the skills, the dispositions, and the mindsets to really express agency in your environment? And what are you doing as an educator to leverage agency, to amplify that, because kids bring that resource to your classroom already. So why do we assume they don't know how to learn? Why do we assume that they're empty as opposed to being really rich beings that bring a lot of, of creativity and knowledge and, and background into the classroom? So we want to create environments where kids can express agency. 
Um, and in that way for us, what we talk about when we think about social justice, being inclusive, having a culture responsive classroom, the best way to do that is allow kids to bring their authentic experiences into the classroom and leverage those for their learning. Um, and so we really emphasize that we don't want kids to take a common uh, route to get to the end, but we got to get them through the end, right? And I say through the end because the standards are not our goal at our schools, they're the floor. This is what we need kids to know. They should know so much more. Um, right. And so we have to get them through those uh, standards and so that that target has to be common, but how we arrive and go through that target doesn't have to be the same. And that's what agency allows us to do is allows kids, allows us to honor kids. I mean, so we would say personalized learning occurs when we when kids are able to express agency in our environment so one of the big differences for us when you know i've looked at differentiation movement i've looked at individualized learning all of these movements is this notion again that learn this thing is education is happening to kids we're doing it to them so to speak as opposed to they're learning and they're doing it for themselves and so if we want to personalize that how do you personalize? You make it your, your own, right? That's what it means to personalize. Anything that's personal is, is to me. It has value to me. And so we have to create an environment in classrooms where kids can find meaning in the space, find meaning in the learning, and, and then connect to it really authentically that honors who they are as learners and moves them through, through that, that experience. So that, that's a challenge because it means that you, you can't be the teacher that's designing lessons. It can't mean, it doesn't mean, you can't be curriculum focused. You have to be student focused. And I think that's right. the biggest transition we're seeking is that let's amplify agency by honoring who our kids are and what they bring naturally to the classroom. But some of our longstanding practices work really well in that environment. So you don't have to give up everything. It's not doing everything new. It's just taking a different look or different perspective on your existing practice that really moves you forward. You bring up an interesting point. I've never quite heard it expressed that way that, um, you know, when, when and I use the word cultivate, and I think there's a connotation to that word that we have to develop it. And and the idea that students come to, to school already with it, that they have the agency, they, they already have those skills. And really, it's just a matter of us getting out of the way in some respects, that we don't over control the environment and over prescribe the environment and allow students. Uh, I've never quite thought of it that way. That's a that's a really great point. Now, I, I think it's the balance, right? Because they do have to have some skills and we do have to understand how, how to, uh, where, where do you think that comes from? Like, wh why do we think, why do you think teachers at times feel like they need to over control the environment uh, with students? Is it a behavioral thing? Is it a learning thing? Is it a little bit of both? What do, you, what, do you, what do you think? Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, I mean, I would say yes. I mean, I'm a social scientist by trade. So I think uh, schools have a history and a culture that we are often not aware of. There's a lot of implicit biases in schools. So I mean, let's talk about why schools were created, right? Schools were created as a reflection of the industrial economy. And so accuracy and, and repetition was really the goal, right? It sounds really terrible to say, but the goal is to create factory workers that can do things for a long period of time accurately with high endurance. Right. Um, and then what we were always selecting and sorting forever. And the two kids that were the kind of the top were the ones that got to go be the engineers, be the white collar, you know, and that worked, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, that was a fantastic model um, for, for learning. The other thing has changed dramatically is information access, right? The internet is the game changer. I mean, so our kids are fact checking us now, right? So if you're <laughs> teaching 1978 facts, cause that's when you were trained and that's when you learn things, then kids are going on the internet and saying, well, that's not true anymore, miss or mister, mm -hmm. right? Like, and so then we lose credibility with our kids because they have access to information. So for, you know, a hundred years, we had more information than our kids. That's not the case anymore. And kids know it. I mean, if you have an eighth grader or below, they've been around since the iPad was invented, right? I mean, I saw a kid, I, I, I joke, but I saw a kid the other day stand in front of their teachers and do this, right? Swipe, I'm looking for the next video. This is not working for me, right? So that's kind of a feedback signal that maybe the lesson's not working. Right. And so, 
but we also have to acknowledge that education for years have been has been a static industry. We could do the same thing for 30 years. You know, what's the old saying? Are we teaching the same year 30 times or have we talked right. for 30 years? Right. I mean, that's a real thing. It's a it's a truism. And so mm -hmm. we have to change as fast as the environment. So part of that is, you know, Paulo Ferrer, Brazilian researcher in education, says, are we educating for conformity or educating for liberation? And I think, you know, a lot of times we educate for conformity. Um, and what I've seen being in a non-private schools is what I worry about, honestly, is that that public schools has become the new conformity mechanism for the masses. Because when you go to private schools and you visit them, they're not doing the stuff we're doing in public schools. Kids, they're doing Socratic dialogues, Harkness table, PBL, like the kids have a lot of choice, right? So in some ways, what we see when people opt out of the public school system is they're, op they're opting out of an industrial model of education. But mm -hmm. then think about scale and all of those things, right? I mean, my public school has got 2,700 kids. So there's a scale factor there. We're just designed for this. So I don't blame the educators. It's the system we were trained in, the system we right. all benefited from. There's a sociology about it that it was good for us. It's good for them. Um, there's a sociology about it. So all of those factors mm -hmm. require us to do some deep introspection about how the kids mm -hmm. are different now than how they used to be, right? right? And that they're not empty, right? And That's I can right. think about the teachers that inspired me. They didn't treat me as I was empty, right? I remember Miss mm -hmm. Sweeten, immigrant kid, didn't speak English. She saw in me the ability to learn. You know, Mr. Haggard, who taught me how to write in grade 10, was like, wow, you have a lot to say. You have a voice. You're just not mm -hmm. saying it very well. Let me teach you how to put some words around that that will really give you voice. But he saw I had a voice. He didn't think of me as having no voice. So, right. so I think great, great teachers have been doing this for a long time. Sure. I think the system has to kind of catch up to, to, the, to the rest of us. Yeah, and every, I, I think everybody shares some responsibility in all of that for sure. I think sure. some of it is the behavioral side of it. Some of it is the uh, I need to to cover my standards at, at a for rapid sure. pace. All of those different things uh, sort of factor into that. But I, I love the I love that notion that that they come to us with that agency, and it's almost as if the system kind of beats it out of them and turns them. Uh, but again, there's no caricature or no extreme position that's ever right. It's not. There has to be some. No order there has to be some you know consistency or predictability but everything in balance and finding ways to cultivate that in schools for sure you know in the book and i, I mentioned this to tim as well when i talked to him the book about plc at work uh personalized learning in a plc at work I, something you you all did um tim you mike austin yourself that i thought was very clever was turning the four guiding questions of a plc into first person questions for the students i thought that was a really great framework I, I, just a brilliant structure to kind of bring and cultivate uh, that agency um, but at the same time as as simple as those questions appear uh, you know a lot of teachers could feel very overwhelmed by mm -hmm. starting to shift those practices so if they wanted to use those four guiding questions to cultivate student agency in their classrooms uh, where should they begin? What's the best way to begin with that? Well, I think it depends on your perspective. When we talked, when we wrote the book, we talked about question four, right? So those kids that already have the standards, let's release them um, and let them go deeper and, and find more challenge and ask them where they think they could go further in the learning. And that's really a powerful tool if you're working in a PLC school where you're trying, where you're really focused on common assessments and you're working as a team. And so uh, differentiating there as an individual practitioner, there's access points everywhere to do this work. Yeah. So whether you're talking about um, you know, asking kids to look at the learning outcomes around question one and saying, what does this mean to you? What do you already know? And doing some diagnostic assessments for them to self-reflect on their entry points to the learning. So, you know, the old KWL chart, 
right? What do you know about yeah. this already? That's a really powerful tool to let kids really express what they already know and give them room in the classroom to start, have different starting points as opposed to saying lesson one, lesson two. Um, you're, you work a lot on assessment. What about goal mm -hmm. setting and, and success criteria development, letting kids be part of that process and, and really opening that up and having a dialogue and modeling. Like when I see this, this is what I see as proficient. What do you guys see? And, and having that dialogue and opening up the dialogue about what it means to be successful in the learning. Um, mm -hmm. Support structures. I mean, you know, Doug Fisher does a great uh, process on modeling and misconceptions and how we teach kids to question them, their own work and identify their own sources of support. Um, so the entry points are, are many places. Um, so I think that as a practitioner, you have to know where you're ready um, and where's your entry point. And so if you're a, I, I call you a curriculum head, if you're like, you like the written curriculum a lot, start there, open up mm -hmm. the written curriculum. If you're, if you're passionate about portfolio assessment, you're passionate about giving kids voice over how they're graded, start there. Um, if you're a you know learning support teacher and, and you love you know you love have, having kids build independence and resources start there i mean if you're you know someone who's like what do i do with the five kids who always seem to finish first well then start there i think everybody has different classroom challenges um and and so it's really about switching that that language in the classroom to saying so what is it you think you can do next that really is is the shift fundamentally um, and honoring the learners. And so in their strategies, I think the hardest part is we're not trained this way. I mean, I wasn't trained in inquiry for sure, right? I mean, if you look at a fellow Canadian like Trevor McKenzie, who was like going around like crazy talking about inquiry by design and, and, and some of the stuff he's doing, Kath Murdoch, I mean, we're just not trained this way. So like we're trained whole group instruction. If we got differentiation and we're good at that, wow, we'd be a superstar teacher in most schools. So how, mm -hmm. we have to lean into all those practices of workshopping, small groups, differentiated tasks in a real meaningful way. Um, and so I, I always tell teachers the place to start is your design. If you design for agency and you think about, okay, here's a point where I can give kids choice and design for it, because that, get, that gets kids more invested and owned in the experience. And then suddenly you'll see them behave differently. Because I think one of the tensions we have right now is, you know, the pandemic has done something really interesting. It's given kids the, the off button. Uh, and, and I think we got really offended as educators. The kids were turning their screens off. They weren't coming to school, but they suddenly were able to mute us. Right? right. And and that didn't happen in the classroom. And I think instead of being offended, we should reflect like, why are they muting us? Mm -hmm. What's going on with that? Why are they not interested in what we're doing? And why? And, and, and do that inquiry. Like what around mm -hmm. this? And there's there's something to be said. I always tell my kids grinding. You know, I'm a child of the of the 90s hip hop scene. So I like grinding. And I always tell my kids, sometimes you got to do things you don't like and you got to grind through it. You just got to, yeah. you know, that's part of that persistence, that determination, that that part of it is a mindset we have to build in kids for mm -hmm. sure. Um, but asking them like, which part of this do you think you're gonna have to grind through and which part of this inspires you? That's a starting point. Give the yeah. kids a voice and they're going to come into your room more inspired because they know you care about them individually. So those are all entry points, but, yeah. but the techniques are, 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 are challenging for teachers, I think, to, to acquire because we've been trained, like start a lesson, anticipatory set, right? Yeah. Give them a, yeah. keep them busy, keep them moving. The GRR model did a great job of like, you know, I do, we do, you do. That's great. And transferring some mm -hmm. ownership. We, we actually lean into that when we talk about how teachers should lean into agency is, is start with, I do model the behaviors, model right. the questioning, model those things, and then slowly start giving kids more room to, to express themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that idea of gr there are things you have to grind through is really important for teachers to keep in mind because as much as we personalize the learning and, and try to, to try to nurture curiosity and, and, and push students in that way, they're not going to have a passion for everything all the time. And so sure. we have to, there are times where we have to, uh, there are certain things that are going to be required, certain things they have to do. But I think in most cases you can find, if, if you're open to it, you can help students find something 
that they can really sink their teeth into and and really be motivated uh, to learn for sure. Okay, so let's um, let's finish up with some specific strategies or some approaches to cultivating agency. I want to really drill down here and and maybe try to give listeners um, some practical examples, teachers you've worked with in the past or maybe are working with currently. Tell us about a few of those teachers and 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 maybe yourself as well. What you have done mm-hmm. or what other teachers have done who have been for you just kind of masterful at, at cultivating agency in the classroom. Some examples for listeners that they can take away and, and kind of think about. Well, I think a few things that come to mind first is, is being a masterful person who asks questions and, and prompts and cues. I think as teachers, we tend to jump to direct explanation when kids have a question because we have this notion that I know and they don't, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying they know or they have the resources to know. So if I answer this question, I'm actually disempowering them. I'm not building their skills of independence. I think that's a stance you have to take. You have to take a stance first as asking a question, then prompting them. Like, where do you think you could find this answer for yourself? Who do you think you could ask? Which is really a question three in the PLC process type of question of building that mm-hmm. self-resilience when you're stuck. Um, and then, you know, are you asking the right question and coaching kids on questions? Uh, the teachers who lean into the agency, the thing they do first is they stop giving answers and they start asking really thoughtful and interesting questions that that cause Mm -hmm. kids to change their approach. Um, Now, initially it's frustrating. So be ready because kids are going to, they're used to you giving, they've been conditioned that the teacher has the answer. And it's like, you know, I call this Pavlovian, right? Ring the bell, you get the answer. Um, And so we've done a lot of teacher observations where, you know, we talk about wait time. The teacher asks a question, two seconds wait time. The teacher answers the question. That's very common. So that we have to stop that practice first. Um, I'd say the second thing that I've seen teachers do really well is allowing kids to set their own goals and really getting kids good at goal setting around their learning. Um, and I'm, I've seen it unit level, which is great, but a bit abstract. Uh, I see it most powerful when you do it daily. Kids come in, instead of having a warm up, what do you need to get done today in your learning? What, are the, what is it gonna look like at the end of the class period to have a successful learning day today? And then what are you gonna do after this at the end of reflection of saying, was today successful? What do you need to do before you come see me tomorrow? So getting them used to that cognitive, metacognitive process of progress monitoring their own learning. Um, and that you can do that whether you're doing lessons, whether you're, you can be teaching very traditionally, and kids can still do that process of, of feeling like, okay, I get to know what I, I get control of what I do today. I get control of the efficiency of my time and I get to control of how much time I get to spend out of work. Think mm-hmm. about the old, uh, okay, I'm gonna let you start your homework. You got 20 minutes. All right, how many kids use that 20 minutes well, right? So <laughs> like, and then they complain about their homework load. Like if you can get right. them just to think about that, then mm-hmm. suddenly they're, they're in control of how they use time, which, which seems uh, more independent, it gives them more independence. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in assessments, I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, we have flipped something here at our school that we're purposely trying to do is having kids reflect before seeking feedback, um, as opposed to reflecting on feedback. I, I think for years we've taught kids to reflect on our feedback. And again, that puts us in control of being the knower. And then you need to reflect on what I told you, which mm-hmm. is still very valuable because we do know things and we are you know, giving feedback on important things. But how about the kids saying, okay, based on the criteria, am I where I need to be? Oh, I'm not going to actually go to the teacher right now because I already know what I need to do next. Um, And deconstructing that, I think, is a very powerful, quick flip strategy that I've seen teachers use that transforms their classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think finally, from a curriculum lens, um, you know, the old anticipatory set, how can we turn that into a provocation, something really interesting and authentic for kids that would inspire them in the learning today that relates Mm -hmm. to the standards? So I see teachers that are doing short one, two minute videos to start a class period. And then what questions do you have about this video? And then what do you think we're learning today? And just building changing how we do anticipatory set for the TikTok mm-hmm. generation, right? Because yeah. I think they need some, 
some of that inspiration to connect like the why these young, you know, we hear about the millennials in the workplace now and they always want to know why they're doing the work. Well, guess what your kids do too. So, yeah. so, I mean, so the more we can do that, the more they'll feel invested and the, the more investment they have, the more they'll express their, their natural agency that they already possess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, there's just so much there, Sasha. I, I, I just think that there's so many ways that we can cultivate that. And I see a lot of overlap with assessment as well. You talked about asking questions. One of the most effective feedback strategies is, asking, you know, giving feedback in the form of a question or a cue mm-hmm. or a prompt, uh, getting the students to do the thinking, asking them questions about their learning and getting them to dig back into it. Uh, and there's also the piece around feedback that you talked about as well, which is that idea that we've been trained that feedback needs to be timely, needs to be immediate, but there's a lot to be said for, and I think research kind of supports this now, the emerging body, that delayed feedback so that there's time for the student to reflect. There's time for them to think about their own learning before we pounce with our feedback. And I often say to folks, you know, if we want students to be self-regulatory about their learning, we want them to cultivate their own ideas. If we keep pouncing with our feedback before they have that reflection time, then there is no space for them to kind of get messy with it. For some of our novice learners, maybe the feedback needs to be more immediate because we want to keep them on track. But as students gain proficiency, it's important that we give them the space to kind of to kind of reflect and and uh, and and to think about what their next steps are to have that control uh, in a way over over where they're going. Um, it is a fascinating topic and certainly something that is timely. And uh, I know we've just kind of scratched the surface here. Yeah. Uh, and certainly there's there's a lot to be said for digging deeper on these topics for sure. Uh, two questions left, Sasha, as we finish up uh, today. Um, and these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Um, Here's the first one, and you can take this one in any direction uh, that you wish. But educationally speaking, the question is, what keeps you up at night? Yeah, I think what keeps me up at night is whether we're preparing this next generation of super talented kids who have access to every piece of information in the world to com- to address these complex problems that my generation's created, right? Um, and I think that what we're seeing in the world right now is a lot of um, a lot of challenges. And those challenges are going to have to be solved. And I think we have the, the human capacity to solve them. But are we really preparing our kids to be creative and thoughtful and, um, you know, human? It sounds bad to say, but human. Are, are we willing? Are we able to connect? Are we making learning so much about stuff and not, not about the community? You know, what the, again, I'll refer to my experience with the pandemic. I've always said that schools will never go away as some people predicted with technology because learning is inherently social, but it's going to become a little bit more like church, right? It's going to become a place where we come to interact with ideas, interact with our ideas and our thinking. It's not going to be a place where we come to, you know, if you're, if you're a person of faith, typically people of faith study, they pray, they do those things, but they go to church for a reason and that's Mm -hmm. to commune and school is going to be the same. So how do we get school to be more of that kind of place where we come together to talk about ideas to gain perspective, mm-hmm. um, say the crazy things that 20 people will push back on in a classroom Socratic seminar, right? So that's what that's what keeps me up at night is really that piece of, of are we preparing kids authentically for those challenges? And, not, and all kids, how much human capacity are we losing every year when kids drop out of school? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's somebody in there that might have the answer to cancer and we didn't we didn't find them because we lost them. So that really keeps me keeps me up. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that notion of come to school to commune. I think that's a, a really a brilliant way of looking at it. Uh, last question uh, is about success, about personal success, and just generally speaking uh, about you as a human being. Uh, if, a, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, Sasha, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Yeah, 
for me, I want to transform the educational system so every kid sees themselves in it and feels inspired to change their piece of the world. I think we put a lot of pressure on kids with authentic things to say, you got to solve, you know, we have kids study the UN Global Sustainability Goals. There's a lot of really smart people working on those things that are way more talented than our fifth graders. Um, and yet we're telling, we're putting all this pressure on these kids to solve yes. these problems. Like right. I want them to have the efficacy that they can. So for me, it's really inspiring educators to yeah. see their kids differently, to see them as able, um, to see them as some, you know, as something we're investing in and cultivating, as you you've said that word a few times, and, and we're really growing them, we're nurturing them, but we're not we're not creating them. They are right, right? and yeah, so I think right. that's that's what success looks like for me. Yeah, I love that. Um, again, I, I agree with that. That that that, and I, you know, you've kind of altered my thinking on that. Not not altered, but you've really brought to light this idea that they come to school with the agency. We just have to bring it out of them and provide them with the opportunities to show that. And are we making that kind of difference to them as we go along? Uh, listeners, you definitely can and should connect with Sasha on social media. You'll find Sasha on Twitter. The handle is at Sasha underscore Heckman. Uh, Sasha is also on LinkedIn. Uh, just search Sasha Heckman there. And you can also uh, find information uh, on the 8 Degrees Up website. That's www8, the number 8, 8degreesup.com. Com. Sasha, you've got a couple other things that you're on the go right now. I want to just throw it to you. I think you mentioned a couple of things, Facebook, mm -hmm. a book going on. What's happening? Yeah, we just uh, launched a Facebook group called Amplifying Agency. We're finding a lot of educators trying these practices in their classroom, but feeling fairly isolated. So again, uh, you know, embracing your PLN, PLN, becoming part of a group of people who are trying to do the same thing and looking for those answers. Really the PLC spirit, We, you know, the answers among us if we ask the question. Um, and then we're also uh, writing a book of the same name to try to get those strategies that we started just touching the surface on of how do you do this work and which part of your existing practices will transfer and which parts kind of need maybe some rethinking. Um, so we're excited. We hope to come that up have that come out with solutions you're here in the near future and, and that'll be exciting to kind of get out there and, and get feedback on so we're looking to continue to contribute and collaborate around this work you are definitely you definitely have a lot on the go my friend and uh certainly uh, appreciate uh, all that you do and the work that you do and the impact that you're having quite literally uh around the world sasha uh it's great to reconnect with you uh it's been a while and uh really appreciate you taking the time to join me today thanks for doing this man thanks for having me it's been great a lot of fun this podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about the art of corrections and the dilemma we might find ourselves in when it comes to feedback and having students correct their work. Now, this has been an interesting phenomenon for me over the course of my career, both personally and observationally. It seemed like, especially earlier in my career, that at the elementary level, doing corrections or correcting your work or improving the quality of your work, which is a natural part of the instructional process. But then students move to middle school or high school and suddenly, poof, gone. Where are the corrections? We don't do that anymore. Now, that has definitely improved sharply in our more recent history and assessment, but that wasn't always the case. But here's the dilemma we often find ourselves in. So on the one hand, we provide students with feedback and we know that's how they advance their learning, right? Unanimous agreement in the academic literature that if you want to improve learning, you have to do it through feedback. But the dilemma is if our feedback tells the student what to do, then is it really their learning that we're assessing? So for example, a student submits a writing assignment and in my mind, I think to myself, okay, this is proficient, this is good, it's at the three level. I provide the students with some feedback and direction on how to move to a four. They follow my directions. They get to a four. They submit another writing assignment. I judge it to be at the three level. 
I provide them with feedback. They dig into that feedback. They advance and they, they end up at the four level. One more time, they submit a writing assignment. I judge it to be a three. I give them the feedback on how they can improve it to a four. They get it to a four. I judge it to be a four. But are they really at that four level? Are they really now an exemplary writer? This was the question a school I was working with last week was wrestling with. So as we explored this topic, I provided them with a sort of litmus test to help them know what is and is not the right way to approach corrections. And like I said, on the one hand, there is that unanimous agreement in the academic literature that feedback is how we advance proficiency. It's how we increase learning. However, the constant input from the teacher can actually skew the assessment results since it might not be the student's independent demonstration that actually reached that four level that I mentioned just a moment ago. So we know feedback is how we advance learning, but has the student really learned if the teacher is constantly giving input? That's the dilemma. Now, as an author, I always have an editor, and the editor provides feedback, guidance, and suggestions, and I make the necessary changes, and then the book is published. So in an authentic setting, there is feedback and outside influence. So to have an environment where it's entirely up to the students is counterproductive and really not realistic. So the real question is, where do we draw the line? Where's the line between it's the student's learning or it's the teacher's learning? Here's the litmus test, and it's actually quite simple. You ask yourself this simple question when it comes to your feedback. Who's doing the thinking? If you as the teacher are doing the thinking and then telling your students what to do procedurally, then it's your learning, not theirs. They're not using your feedback. They're following your directions. However, if you provide feedback that causes the students to do the thinking, well, now you're on to something and you can take that growth to a four or whatever level to be more accurate. And I've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning here again when it comes to feedback. I think teachers, for the most part, are guilty of doing two things when it comes to feedback for all the right reasons. So don't get me wrong here. This is, this is coming from the right place. But we are often guilty of doing two things with feedback. One is providing too much feedback. And we always gauge too much by the proportion of time that you're prepared to give students to act upon the feedback, right? So too much is not a set amount. It's just in relation to how much time students are going to be given. And the other part is we do too much of the thinking for the students. And I tend to see this a little bit more actually in the elementary level or middle school level, but even at the high school level, it's there. We do too much of the thinking. So our feedback isn't actually feedback. It's a set of directions. Now, we obviously want students to grow in their learning. But if we do the thinking for them, again, they're not using our feedback. They're just doing what they're told. So a couple of things you can do to help yourself with this situation. First, focus your feedback on statements of quality rather than specific actions. So for example, I might say to a learner, now let's work on finding a more compelling way to grab the reader's attention at the beginning of your story. I didn't tell them how to do that. I didn't tell them what to write. I simply pointed them in the right direction of quality. Now many of you will recall my assertions about task-neutral criteria that is focused on the learning, the standards, and not the specific tasks. Now, this goes a long way to ensuring that my feedback is transferable and that it prioritizes impacting the student's long-term learning, even if it doesn't acutely improve the overall quality of the task at hand, right? So having task-neutral criteria that is learning-focused and built from the standards will actually help you direct your feedback to be more task-neutral, learning-focused, and focused on quality as opposed to 
trying to just acutely improve the quality of the task at hand. Remember, this is one of the reasons why feedback may not always work. Feedback is not effective because it exists. Feedback is effective because students utilize it. And feedback is effective long-term because it's focused on impacting their long-term learning, not just acutely improving them on that task, right? When we are too task-specific, then we might improve the quality of those tasks. But each time you change the task, even when you're uh, assessing the same learning, you hit the reset button constantly, right? So the key for me is to focus our feedback in a way that suggests improvements in quality without telling them what to do. Who's doing the thinking? So describe, don't prescribe, as I like to say, right? Describe quality, describe what's next, don't prescribe output, don't tell them what to do. So the editors of the books I've authored or co-authored are not educators. They don't make content suggestions or tell us what to write. They do make suggestions for clarity. They ask for citations. They ask for, you know, organizational things. They focus on quality without telling us what to actually do, which they really can't do because that's not their background. And I'm sure they've learned a lot over the years from all the books they've edited and read. But, but education is not their area of expertise. So it might be a little easier for them than us. Since we are the experts in our field, uh, it's easy for us to tell the students what to do. But we want to be mindful of that. Focus on descriptions of quality and make sure that the students are doing the thinking. And second of all, that's the other thing you can do to that end, is to make sure that the feedback you provide comes in the form of a cue or a question or a highlighter or a prompt. Like one of my favorite feedback mantras is, and many of you have heard me say this many times, is not every moment of feedback has to be epic. What we're trying to do here is cause more learning, cause a re-engagement with improving quality. So asking questions, highlighting certain sections, right? Directing the student's attention to areas that are either strong or in the case of corrections, what needs to be strengthened without giving them directions, right? So a lot of people use the highlighters, the green and pink highlighters, signaling aspects of strength in green, signaling uh, what needs strengthening in pink, and having the students get into their work and figuring out why, through the criteria, the highlights are green, the highlights are pink, what aspects of quality is the teacher looking at, right? Now, you might need to be a little bit more hands-on with those at a more novice level with the current learning, but it is critical to make sure that whatever feedback you provide is neither too sophisticated or too pedestrian for where the learner is. So we got to find that sweet spot. Feedback is most effective when it is at or just slightly above where that learner is. I might have 16 things I need to work on, but what is most pressing and what is most accessible to me? Corrections are the only way we are going to help all learners reach proficiency with the standards or the outcomes of the class that they're enrolled in. But there is an art to it. Okay, when you provide students with feedback, ask yourself, am I giving them feedback or am I giving them a set of directions to follow? In other words, who's doing the thinking, right? If the students are doing the thinking, then they are full value for any and all improvements they've gained. If they move from a three to a four, then they're a four. Yeah, you look, maybe once in a while you're going to throw in an impromptu writing assignment or an impromptu data analysis, just just so you can check whether or not the learning has stuck, right? Is the new level actually their new level? That's fine. You, you may need to check that. That's not a bad idea. But the way we go about this and making sure corrections are, are on point is I would think of doing these things. First, again, as I mentioned, 
describe quality so that the students are the ones who have to figure out how to improve the quality, who's doing the thinking. Focus on the learning. And again, I know that sounds flippant. It's like, oh, great idea, Tom. Never thought of that. 20 years in education, never thought of focusing on the learning. But there's a method to that madness. And the method is we have to make sure that our feedback is transferable and that it's focused on improving quality of the learning, not necessarily acutely improving the task at hand. And there's a difference between those two. It's easy to get task focused and lose sight of the ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal is long-term learning. Another thing to think about again, to summarize, use more cryptic strategies, highlighters, questions, cues, prompts that force the students to dive back into their work and the associated criteria and so that they have to make decisions about what to do next, right? Who's doing the thinking? And another way to ask yourself that question is, who's the decision maker? Who's making the decision right now? Your job is to point them in the right direction. Your job is not to do the thinking for them, right? So describe quality, focus on the learning, and think about those cryptic strategies that can get them to re-engage with their work. So ask yourself again, am I providing feedback or am I giving the students a set of directions to follow? Who is the decision maker? There's a big difference between the two. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got suggestions for the podcast or questions for Assessment Corner. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming Grading from the Inside Out and Standards-Based Learning and Action trainings coming this spring. Next week, my guest will be my friend and colleague, Ken Williams. We're going to focus on what Ken calls Ruthless Equity, which is actually the title of his soon-to-be-released book. I absolutely love that, so I can't wait for that conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. But of course, anywhere you can leave a rating or a review would be greatly appreciated. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would also really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.